Are you ready to experience something extraordinary? Cultural gems in Croatia, ancient temples in Asia, art in Italy. We'll take care of everything. Flights, accommodation, excursions, local guides and all that planning. Travel department, let's see more. I do not think of you lying in the wet clay of a Monaghan graveyard. I see you walking down a lane among the poplars on your way to the station, or happily going to second mass on a summer Sunday. You meet me and you say, don't forget to see about the cattle. Among your earthiest words, the angels stray. And I think of you walking along a headland of green oats in June, so full of repose, so rich with life. And I see us meeting at the end of a town on a fair day by accident, after the bargains are all made and we can walk together through the shops and stalls and markets, free in the oriental streets of thought. Oh, you are not lying in the wet clay, for it is a harvest evening now, and we are piling up the ricks against the moonlight. And you smile up at us, eternally. And that was Kathleen Watkins. What a beautiful reading that was. Welcome to part two of our celebration of Patrick Kavanagh. I'm Gary Cook, and you're listening to The Senior Times. We are joined again by Michael Hines, Associate Professor of English at Dublin City University. Well, in 1952, I was blinder than ever. That was odd. I had so much to say, and as nobody would imply me, I'd know how to say it. Every potential employer said that I was a genius, and therefore unemployable. It was horrid. Then my brother Peter said to me, I have 800 quid, let's start a weekly paper. And when the 800 is gone, we'll stop. We'll have the first issue on the stands next week. So I went to the typewriter and for 13 weeks wrote laden articles, poems, letters, stories for children, and evocations of my unimportant life. And I am now looking at the file of that weekly, which we call Kavanagh's Weekly which is my best autobiography and gives an account of all the years that were around me then and the story of the times I was living in. This was during the final years of my belief in belief and my belief in Ireland as a spiritual entity. I was out to save my country and wrote in the first issue's editorial. Why are people leaving the countryside in the thousands? They go to England where conditions are extremely bad. What they are seeking is enthusiasm for life. Attempts have been made to superimpose an artificial gaiety on the countryside, amateur dramatics and all that. But these things are not indigenous. Happiness is continuity, growth. And once that chain is broken, as here, disaster follows. And as I read that piece again, I am now looking out the big window onto the sunlit trees on Pembroke Road. My 1952 analysis of this problem was this. 
As we've seen, mediocrity is never pernicious unless we begin to call it something else. Statesmanship and sound sense. And the third issue, I was beginning to get pretty angry. And I said, a wake is in progress in this country. A wake at which there is lashings of eating and drinking. The undertaker in his long black cloak moves around on padded feet. At wakes, nothing serious is ever discussed. Nobody is angry or destructive. At a wake, everybody speaks in a hypocritical whisper. God be good to him, he was a decent man. Rare the good family, whispers another. Weary humbug eyes open in sickly simulation of woe and good nature. Don't disturb the mourners with the thoughts. And this leading article said later, there is yet another aspect of this immorality which is still more damning. It is this. It creates an atmosphere in which nihilism prospers. Living in this atmosphere, you lose faith. A man should not preach too near the gates of hell, for hell justifies its own view by a hellish psychology. After a while in hell, you begin to agree with the devil's point of view and to look upon the excitement and bitterness of the upper house as being, well, not playing the game. And if the angel Gabriel brought out a paper, he would get no advertising on account of his attitude to large sections of the human race. Uh, some people have described him as a, a better writer of prose than actually than of, than of poetry. Mm. Uh, he wrote two fairly well-known novels, The Green Phil uh, and Terry Flynn, both semi-autobiographical. Uh, what do you think of them in, in the place of literary sort of tradition? I think the relationship of the novels to the poetry is really interesting because a lot of the time with his with his poetry, you could say it's not actually the most... It's quite prosy in places. I mean, he makes an awful lot of use of rhyme, use of rhyme but in terms of scanning, it's not smooth, it's not uh, mellifluous. It's actually a pretty ugly poetry in places, apart from things like the sonnets, where he sort of uses a more conventional form and becomes in many ways a more conventional poet. Some of his early poetry is more or less... It's quite modern and radical it feels like chopped up prose so then by extension you go over to the you go over to the uh, the prose and interesting enough it's probably in places more uh more vividly lyrical at times in its use of descriptive language funnily enough you know that there's a bit more license that he allows himself there um that the, the there's and i said that his poetry is comic, the prose is certainly comic, uh, and even more so. But I think arguably you could say that, uh, to a degree, it's it's a gentler form of comedy. Like the comedy of the Great Hunger is is bitter and uh, harsh. I mean, it's it's interesting to set the Great Hunger aside. These uh, prose texts, which many in many ways seem to kind of correspond to Kavanaugh's own uh, early history and all this kind of thing, where he's sort of figuring this stuff out. But it seems as though he took quite seriously the idea of, in prose, almost producing a kind of portrait of the artist, a kind of explanation of, you know, here's where I am, here's how I was made. Um, whereas in The Great Hunger, it's almost like, look at the state of me and look at the state of Ireland. <laughs> that that's 
a much more uh, somber and aggravated kind of vision. Was he considered to be a really good commentator on the Ireland as it was? Well, again, he was forever kind of railing about about critics and things like that. I think probably not enough time is given to understanding his own kind of critical voice and critical perspective. If you look around at that time, there were very few other people expressing a vision like his. One of the issues, I suppose, is that if Kavanaugh was saying these things in newspaper columns, um, it might have actually got him into a lot of trouble. But the fact is, as you know, uh, as a great critic, one of my favourite writers about poetry, Randall Gerald, once said, you can say anything in a poem and no one will mind, right? But at the same time, you know, Kavanaugh himself, the guards came round to see him. Well, Terry Flynn was considered to be anti-Catholic, wasn't it? And The Great Hunger was viewed to be very problematic too. So, like, you know, Kavanaugh, it's interesting to think about how Kavanaugh, in an almost unprecedented way, had the eyes of <laughs> the state upon him to a certain degree. Which in itself is an indication that people understood what he said was of great consequence. Another thing I find amazing about Patrick Kavanaugh was that he was quite friendly with John Charles McQuaid, yeah. the then Archbishop and uncrowned King of Ireland. The thing about McQuaid was that McQuaid's patronage was an interesting phenomenon and of course a very double-edged thing. Like McQuaid did like to sponsor the arts and uh, he instituted, you know, colleges. In fact, I used to teach in a college that McQuaid set up in the late 1960s. It's perfect for Kavanaugh. And, you know, talking about the Gogarty court case as well, Kavanaugh becomes, he's almost this, this, this point of reference for all of these different aspects of the Irish experience in the 20th century, particularly the kind of mid-20th century, because uh, obviously we're having our 1960s now and everything's hunky-dory. It wasn't like Kavanaugh was alive. Um, the kind of weirdness of being, uh, enjoying patronage, but, you know, Kavanaugh needed to take his patronage wherever he could get it. And it, and to, to sort of have that, but at the same time to write something like The Great Hunger, that's a very interesting kind of thing because The Great Hunger is really writing about the shadow of patronage like that, mm. what it feels like to, to live in that way and with that kind of scrutiny and kind of observation and the sense of something that sits, sits there on top of your life, <laughs> looking at you and in affecting the way that people understand things. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Are you interested in trying a new smartphone but still a little unsure? Do you want a phone that offers larger icons with louder sound and an interface that has technology designed for seniors? Well, why not choose from the Doro range by simply visiting doro.ie? Doro. Make friends with innovation. He was a famous punter. Like he loved horse racing. And it emerges at times as a kind of something he cites in some of the poems. Like so it's there's that strange poem, The The Roly Mile, uh, which is about as a lot of his poems are about a kind of encounter with a woman or a thwarted encounter with a woman. But the Roly Mile is famously um, the main race course at Newmarket. Right. So somehow or other, this, this phrase, the Roly Mile, exerted itself in his imagination. But perhaps because of his many, uh, many uh, disappointments on the turf, 
he translocated the name of it to a kind of romantic disappointment. And interestingly, uh, Rachel Blackmore, the jockey, uh, reads one of the poems, Pegasus. Because that, and that poem is about selling a horse, right? Um, and, but it's a, a kind of, it's such a great story. That, that's a great story poem. The same way you can have great story songs. Kavanaugh writes some great story poetry. Um, I mean, and it feels like a gag, you know, the, the kind of humiliation of that poem is that he can't sell it. Like he can't find an Irish an Irishman who can't find somebody to buy his horse is a pretty poor excuse for an Irishman. <laughs> given given our given our history and the terms of our culture and and in many ways the poem plays upon that um, that I mean, a man who can't sell a horse that he actually doesn't really want to sell. Um, it's kind of beautiful. My soul was an old horse, offered for sale in 20 fairs. I offered him to the church. The buyers were little men who feared his unusual airs. One said, let him remain unbid in the wind and rain and hunger of sin, and we'll get him with the winkers thrown in for nothing. Then the men of state looked at what I'd bought for sale. One minister wondering if another horse body would fit the tale that he'd kept for sentiment, the relic of his own soul said I will graze him in lieu of his labour. I lent him for a week or more and he came back a hurdle of bones, starved, overworked in despair. I nursed him on the roadside grass to shape him for another fair. I lowered my price, I stood him where the broken winded spavin stand and crooked shopkeepers said that he might do a season on the land, but not for high paid working towns. He'd do a tinker possibly. I begged, oh, make some offer now. A soul is a poor man's tragedy. He'll draw your dungiest cart, I said. Show you shortcuts to mass, teach weather lore at night, collect bad debts from poor man's grass, and they would not. Where the tinkers quarrel, I went down with my horse, my soul, I cried. Will you bid me half a crown? From their rowdy bargaining, not one turned. Soul, I prayed, I have hawked you through the world of church and state and meanest trade. But this evening, halter off, never again will it go on. On the south side of ditches there is grazing of sun, no more haggling with the world. As I said these words, he grew wings upon his back. Now I may ride him, every land my imagination knew. Having confessed, the poet feels that he should go down on his knees and pray for forgiveness for his pride, for having dared to view his soul from the outside. Lie at the heart of the emotion, time has its own work to do. We must not anticipate or awaken for a moment. God cannot catch us unless we stay in the unconscious room of our hearts. We must be nothing, nothing that God may make us something. We must not touch the immortal material. 
We must not daydream tomorrow's judgment. God must be allowed to surprise us. We have sinned, sinned like Lucifer, by this anticipation. Let us lie down again, deep in anonymous humility, and God may find us worthy material for his hand. Having confessed, what is he getting at here, do you think? Uh, well, firstly, it's worth kind of talking about the grain of his voice and actually how kind of interesting it is to hear it and the, the kind of free song you get because in many ways a lot of the time these poems have come mediated to us through semi-constipated performances in classrooms <laughs> or people reading poetry the way they think it ought to be read and to hear Kavanagh's voice suddenly opens up new angles and a kind of you know a sense of the kind of the grain of his character and of his experience in these poems how invested he is in them it's a kind of magical thing to hear but that poem in itself I think is is again so brilliant because it understands what what confession's supposed to do uh you know that confession it's kind of pure sense you open yourself and you make yourself kind of like available for uh contrition and for uh some kind of salvation and yet when he talks about it having confessed there's also this sense that you've merely formed an obligation and all you've done is invite all sorts of other commandments upon your head that this is not this is not the kind of cleansing that it ought to be and it's the his frustration i think it's not that cabin is uninterested in what religion might have to offer i think and like i'm saying i think it's a deeper mystery than that that a lot of the time he's connected to but his hatred of kind of words for the sake of words more claptrap if you like the problem of the claptrap of religion <laughs> Uh, whenever it actually had something real to communicate, comes across very powerfully in that poem. In 1954, uh, Patrick Kavanagh was diagnosed with lung cancer uh, and uh, lived with it, which I, I don't think probably that many people did. Uh, and I presume he was in and out of hospital. And indeed, he wrote a poem called The Hospital. Um, was that, I presume, semi-autobiographical? Um, yep. And what you see in that poem is a particular kind of toughness and resilience, but also a, a different kind of voice that emerges in Kavanagh. Like he, he says at the end of the poem, he kind of rejects this idea. He says, you know, we must record love's mystery without claptrap. But this kind of without claptrap almost becomes the informing vision of the poem. He sees the hospital for what it is which in many ways is a fairly neutral space that might be bringing him towards his inevitable death, but he sees that for what it is. And it gives a real, um, it gives a real clarity to his vision, but it also is kind of heartbreaking in a certain sense, in a very kind of restrained way, because you also realise that Kevin has been defined, you know, uh, prior to this in his career, by this poetry of appetite, this kind of thing we were talking about. And here's almost reached the end of that. Because you're now having to look at something else, and which is the end of appetite, the end of being, um, and to really figure out how to write in the face of death, he does it in a really unique and you know uh, tough-minded way. A year ago, I fell in love with the functional ward of a chest hospital. Square cubicles in a row, 
plain concrete, wash basins, and art lovers' woe. Not counting how the fellow in the next bed snored. But nothing whatever is by love debarred. The common and banal her heat can know. The corridor led to a stairway and below was the inexhaustible adventure of a graveled yard. This is what love does to things. The Rialto Bridge, the main gate that was bent by a heavy lorry, the seat at the back of a shed that was a sun trap, naming these things is the love act and its pledge, for we must record love's mystery without claptrap. Snatch out of time the passionate transitory. Patrick Cavanaugh also wrote uh, short stories, and he wrote short stories for children. And I'm not even going to try and tell you what this is really about, other than to say it's about two toes. The big toes. One morning as Joe was lying in bed with his feet out of the bed close, his big toes shook itself and began to talk to him. Hardy morning, said the big toe. Joe was in an awful state. He wasn't able to think for a few minutes. He pulled the clothes over his head for a while and tried to pretend that he didn't hear the big toe talking. In the end, he peeped down and there were his two big toes nodding and talking to each other. We want you to let us go home, said the first big toe. We don't belong to your feet at all. We won't be happy unless you let us go. But how can I let you go, said Joe. I can't uh, cut off a big toe. Get the razor and cut us off, and we won't be sorry, said the second big toe. It won't hurt you. So Joe got up and gets the safety razor blade, and he cuts off his two big toes. The two toes began to grow eyes and a small pair of legs, and in a few minutes they had hands and everything. They shook hands with Joe and went out the door and down the stairs. Joe sat a while in the bed, wondering was a dream. But it was no dream. When he tried to get out of bed to put on his boots, he was found he was short as two big toes. He told his wife what he had done and she got on a bicycle and raced down the road after the toes. And she found them at the turn of the road, fighting between themselves as to which was the right toe and which was the left. To settle the question, they had started to come back. The woman tried to stop them to catch them, but they were too smart for her. Back into the house they ran and up the stairs, and asked to be let try themselves on the sweet again. And that's how Joe got his big toes back. Now, isn't that a good story? It's awful. And did the toes ever speak to him again? He wouldn't let them. He always kept his socks on in bed. Is he laughing with the world, or is he just laughing against the world? Ooh. Well, I suppose both, but he's also show. What he's doing, what a great, a great writer does, is that he actually, in part, is showing us how to laugh at it. Um, rehearsing, uh, great writers rehearse situations from life for us, that we know what it might be like to live through them. We don't necessarily want to actually experience what happens in the Great Hunger, but we do want to get a sense of how kind of uh, bitter and kind of terrifying that experience might be. Um, but in doing these kind of rehearsals, they also show you how to live through them and cope with them. And one of the ways is to laugh. Um, now, the laughter 
can take on a lot of shades. And Kavanaugh's laughter is, uh, you know, multifaceted in that way. There's an awful lot of, um, there's a, there's a, a lot of kind of cackling, I think, <laughs> bitterly ironic cackling, uh, as well as a few belly laughs. Was he considered to be a really good commentator on the Ireland as it was? Well, again, he was forever kind of railing about about critics and things like that. I think probably not enough time is given to understanding his own kind of critical voice and critical perspective. If you look around at that time, there were very few other people expressing a vision like his. One of the issues, I suppose, is that if Kavanaugh was saying these things in newspaper columns, um, it might have actually got him into a lot of trouble. But the fact is, as you know, uh, as a great critic, one of my favourite writers about poetry, Randall Jarrell, once said, you can say anything in a poem and no one will mind. Kavanaugh didn't quite have the same international uh, audience as, say, you know, somebody like Seamus Heaney has uh, achieved. Uh, wh why is that? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting question. You could, and, and it's, I think, a mistake to say that it's something inherent in his work, I would subscribe to the point of view that this kind of thing a lot of the time is chance or economics. And one, I think, had Patrick Cavanda been published by Faber and Faber, the preeminent publisher of poetry in London at the time, uh, he might well have secured a far greater audience. There were, there were just, some of the time there were problems with the distribution of his work, even after his death. There was a lot of kind of argument about his collected poems. His brother wanted to continue publishing them, but a trust who was in charge of his estate wanted to kind of redo it and re-divert it in another direction. And that's not the kind of thing that helps you achieve an international reputation. It actually comes down to supply lines. I know it seems kind of very kind of counter-subliminal counter and kind of unromantic to say it's so. business. But it was, it's a feature of it. He worked so hard. Kavanaugh's Weekly was a good example of that, of trying to create a culture and an environment wherein people would be ready to read his work. He understood how the mechanics of that very well. And he understood that there was a, a readership outside and over there. And let's face it, that readership, if they could handle Seamus Heaney's townlands a generation later, they could have handled his. And I've already mentioned, I think, Robert Frost, who was the great model of, you know, how do, how do poems about a very specific kind of uh, New England farmland reach a global audience? Kavanaugh saw that. I, I think he wanted it. But I really think that it... it, it it wasn't a fault in his work. It's not that he's inherently so Irish that only Irish people can get him. I think he just was unlucky, wrong place, wrong time in terms of the kind of publishing networks he was part of. He did get uh, to a wider circulation in London in the mid-50s and he was published in uh, a literary magazine, um, uh, Nimbus. Mm. Uh, and that did kind of finally get him to, to the recognition he felt he deserved and he did deserve. Uh, the final years of his, his life, he died in 1967, presumably they were marked by a sense of having arrived, particularly if he got the imprimatur from London. Yeah, and he was invited to lecture in the United States. He, you know, was, was giving kind of public lectures. It's, this is the thing, we can make a terrible mistake and characterise Kavanaugh as some kind of failure. 
compared to most poets, he was a roaring success, <laughs> like a figure of real significance in his own lifetime. That it didn't translate into some kind of poetic superstardom, that arguably is not necessarily something that really exists anyway, or it, it only exists in a very kind of unusual form. Um, but what is what what's curious is, I suppose, the sense that do you always have the sense with Kavanaugh, therefore, that there's a, a readership waiting for him or a broader readership waiting for him, and it would be interesting to see what they would make of him. It's hard to imagine a readership anywhere uh, failing to recognise what's going on in the Great Hunger. It's expressing something so fundamental uh, and something that probably corresponds to, to people everywhere. Like I've been saying, the stuff about deep structures and, um, and you know magic and all of that, uh, and Kavanaugh was sort of really interested in um, world literature. You know, these references are, that he makes to the classics, obviously. But we also see in his later work reference to William Burroughs and, you know, the, the, and his cut-up techniques and things like that. I mean, Kavanaugh was a very sophisticated literary person. Um, and again, uh, it's a mistake if we don't see that uh, but again, trying to kind of fathom why more people haven't engaged with this work, this is, this is almost just the, the, it's, the world's too crowded. You know, if people are spending 10 weeks in the United States reading Yates, that means they have 10 weeks less time they have to read Kavanaugh. In my opinion, they probably should be reading Kavanaugh. Or listening to the Claddagh Collection. But that, that's an interesting development, right? Because clearly that in itself is suggesting that different performers can find different tones and notes in Kavanaugh's poems. The sort of sign that a, a poet really is becoming kind of uh, reachable or kind of, if you like, international is that their work can survive passing beyond themselves. If you like... so. We can read, we don't know who Homer was. We don't even know if there was a Homer, but we can read those lines and recognise them because we can, and recognise all sorts of different things in them. That's what makes a literary text survive. You know? Um, it, an exercise like this, this, this CD is interesting because it's finding a kind of polyvocality in Kavanaugh, that he's no longer just Kavanaugh, but a chorus of potential readings. Uh, and now hopefully almost everything will bring him to a, a new readership uh, courtesy of uh, Clara Records and all the outstanding artists they have reading his poetry. Thanks Michael for your valuable insights and commentary. We could talk all day but unfortunately time is calling us. So thanks again. Today's show was produced by Conor O'Hagan and presented by me Gary Cook uh, and as always done in association with our sponsors Specsavers Expressway and Doro Foss. Let us finish with the words of Patrick Kavanagh in his poem, Epic, read now by Jesse Buckley. I have lived in important places, times when great events were decided. Who owned that half a rood of rock a no-man's land surrounded by our pitchfork-armed claims. I heard the Duffy shouting, Damn your soul! 
An old McCabe, stripped to the waist, seen step the plot defying blue cast steel. Here is the march along these iron stones. That was the year of the Munich bother. Which was more important? I inclined to lose my faith in Ballyroche and Gartine, till Homer's ghost came whispering to my mind. He said, I made the Iliad from such a local row. Gods make their own importance.